invite you to take your Bible out, uh, turn to Ephesians in the New Testament. You can go ahead and mark mark the page. We're going to be in Ephesians over the next month or so. So if you are not uh, great at finding Ephesians, just dog ear that page, put a little sticky note in there to mark Ephesians. Let's read verses 15 through 23. The Apostle Paul writes this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith and the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And as we finish that reading, I cannot help but to think that is our prayer this morning. Father, we ask that you would give us the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better and that you would open up the eyes of our hearts this morning so that we may know. I hope that you've called us to glorious riches that you have given to us and even see in us, and that we would know the great power that you have for all those who believe in your name. In Jesus' name. So we're looking at Ephesians over the next month or so. Uh, One thing that I mentioned last week is that Ephesians gives us a new way of seeing things. And so over the next several weeks, we are going to look at those things that Jesus then reveals a new way for us to see them. And today, that is society, which might not initially sound very interesting to you. But I want to start with a question, how do you view society, the society that you live in? In. Let's remember that Paul is writing this letter to specific Christians living in a certain society, and they saw that society in a certain way that we're going to look at this morning. How do you view society? Uh, you may view society with a little fear, like, I hope it doesn't all fall apart. Maybe with animosity, like, ah, society, it seems like it's always against me. So Paul writes this letter to Christians in a threatening society of Ephesus. 
And let's look at what he writes in our verse 17. So if you just keep that Bible open in front of you, um, verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We can understand that that to be the Holy Spirit so that you may know Christ better. He's praying that Christians would really know Christ, really know his heart. As Carol prayed earlier, when we learn to know what Jesus loves, that can open the door to our heart being changed so that we love what Jesus loves. So Paul is praying that we really know Christ. We will know Christ's heart, that we will know Christ's word to us, that we will know Christ's will, that we would know who is Christ. And as read this the scripture, we see that Christ is the exalted God over all the universe. And, and Paul wants us to really know Christ because when you really know Christ, something happens to us. And so I think this, this statement right here I'm going to give to you is a good way for us to understand, to understand Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is that we would know Christ in order to grow in Christ, so that we will grow in Christ. Knowing Christ means growing in Christ. And we can know this because Paul's prayer, that we just, the beginning of it that we just read in verse 17, um, that is not separated from what Paul prays next. The three things that he prays that we will know, they're all interconnected. He lists them in verses 18 and 19. Paul prays that we will know Christ and as well that we would know the hope to, we, to which we are called, a security, that's number one, a security that is found as we contemplate our riches. That's number two. And immeasurable power that we receive. That's number three. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Hope, security that we find in riches, true riches, and power. So let's start with the first one. Uh, Paul prays that we will have an outlook of hope, a real outlook of hope. In verse 18, Paul prays that, it's my prayer, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The hope of Christianity is different from how we typically use the word hope today. The typical definition of hope today is it's wishful thinking, correct? I hope this good thing's hap- this, this good thing or that good thing happens. It might not. I hope it does. I hope that I get this opportunity or that one, but I might not. Uh, Christian hope is absolute assurance that is rooted in God's promise to us. Now, there may be some wishful thinking that isn't necessarily included in God's promises uh, to us. And it's helpful to think through at least a few of them um, because of the society that we live in. Well-funded retirement, that is one of the things that might be a wishful thinking kind of hope. 
that isn't necessarily included in God's promises for us. What else? Uh, Constant career happiness, success, advancement. That's maybe a wishful thinking hope. Hope it happens. Not necessarily included in God's promises to us. Finding a lifelong marriage partner. Um, There's some great things in this list, correct? Great things. But they aren't specific things that we can hope for and know that they will happen. In fact, in order for these things that we often hope will happen to happen, the the wishful thinking kind of hope, it, it, it generally requires a bit of skill or resources on our part in order for those things to happen. In order to have that well-funded retirement, well, it takes resources. It takes money for you to invest. It takes knowing how to invest them. It takes knowing a great uh, financial uh, strategist and being able to afford her services. Um, Achieving the kind of the career happiness and climb. Well, that requires, for that to happen, it requires perhaps um, having Important aptitudes for the job, maybe more so than the other coworkers around you, or knowing the right people. See, the things that we often wish for, and we say, I hope it happens, those things require something from us. But in Paul's day, uh, he's writing to Christians who generally were not the people who had the greatest training or the skills, the aptitudes, the ones with the most resources, or the opportunities. In in very early days, Christianity generally appealed to those people who were at the end of the rope. Those are the first Christians, people who are at the end of their rope. And so back then, just as it can do today, society gave you plenty of reasons to doubt yourself. The city of Ephesus gave those early followers of Christ plenty of reasons to doubt themselves, to feel powerless, to feel like a have-not, always looking from the outside in on the few haves, who actually had a decent chance of seeing their wishful thinking hopes of coming to pass. And it's in this environment that Paul writes this 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 letter and says something remarkable. He says, God has called you to have hope, a real hope. God selects you. That's what it means that God has called you to this hope. God selects you. In other words, Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It is confident assurance. And I've heard it put like this. How does hope function in the life of a Christian. Hope hope is like faith standing on tiptoe. Hope is what pulls us forward into the future, looking with optimistic hope of what God is going to be doing. That's hope. It's faith on tiptoe. It's leaning into life. It's the expectation that you will, we will see God's goodness coloring every page of our life. You can have real hope only when you see life differently, only when something deeper fills your core identity than what you do for a living, occupation, 
relationships, even family relationships or close friend relationships. You see, God, the hope that God calls you to is certainly rooted in God's promises for us, but it's it's about what God is going to be doing in our future. But it's this, it's God calls you to this life of him accomplishing his purposes and promises for the world through you. That's the new way of seeing your life. God calls you to a new life of him accomplishing his purposes and promises for the world through you, through the church, through God's people, empowered by God's spirit, knowing Christ, and then serving out God's purposes in the world. So no longer do you live for yourself, but you live for God. And God will accomplish his glorious purposes for the world through Christ and through the people of Christ, through us, through the church. Now that is a life that you can lean into and know will happen. Next, Paul says we have certain security. So we have real hope, face standing on tiptoe, looking into the future, and certain security as well. So in Ephesus, uh, there was no real security. Uh, One scholar put living in Ephesus like this. Hope was a rare commodity in the first century world uh, that Paul addressed, as it is today. It was a rare commodity, hope was, because fate, determinism, and despair dominated the ancient world. That's what is said of ancient Ephesus. It was a city of fate, belief of fate, determinism, and hidden spiritual powers that dominated the ancient world. So the religious view in Ephesus was that there were these hidden spiritual powers that governed the affairs of life. And the spiritual powers at, that were believed to be in charge didn't necessarily have the slightest concern for you. So the book of Acts, if we were to, to, to look at the book of Acts chapter 19, um, it captures a very revealing snapshot of life in Ephesus. And as this is how uh, life in Ephesus is described, um, people were becoming, to, becoming Christian. They were putting their faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as that happened... Acts 19 describes two things following that. Um, So look at Acts chapter 19, verse 19. So here's the first one. It says that a number, and these are the people that are putting their hope in Christ now, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50 thousand drachmas. Now that term sorcery is actually very rarely used in the New Testament. So what is its use here is describing a very unique society in Ephesus uh, that is engrossed in astrology. What's astrology? The study of the stars to know the future. It's the belief that we can look at the, the night sky and the position of of the, the, the stars and the planets to, to know what the future will be. 
Um, so uh, the Society of Ephesus uh, believed in astrology. It also believed in sorcery. What sorcery was the use back then, perhaps this, uh, the use of incantations and rituals. Whatever's written on these scrolls that were burned, incantations, rituals, to try to steer fate in your favor. Like, ah, the stars are determining my fate, what happens, but I'm going to try to steer it in my favor through sorcery. And these new Christians burned all these scrolls. 50,000 drachmas. That's 50,000 days worth of wages. Now, sometimes I like to think of what the equivalent would be today. So Ephesus was probably the size of kind of the greater Clear Lake community. 250 or so thousand people. Clear Lake, Friendswood, League City, parts of Pasadena. You get the picture. Good-sized city of its own. It would be like uh, citizens of the greater Clear Lake area coming to one location and burning $10 million. That's about 50,000 uh, days worth of wage, kind of a modest wage. $10 million of our stuff, just bringing it together and having a big old bonfire and saying, we're done with this silly superstition because of Christ. So that was one thing that was happening in Ephesus, the society offering no hope to people, people turning to Christ and saying, we're done with these superstitions. And the other thing um, that we need to know about ancient Ephesus was uh, its uh, worship of the goddess Artemis. So in, in Ephesus was, was one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, 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 the temple to the goddess Artemis. Huge, massive building, one of the most magnificent structures, man-made structures of the ancient world. Made of marble, solid marble. And Artemis um, was known as the goddess of life, but she was also the goddess of death. She could bring life, she could bring death. And so if this impersonal force fate, just take stock of what people in Ephesus are generally thinking. If it wasn't this impersonal force fate that was dictating my future, then it's this goddess Artemis. And so people engaged in elaborate rituals just to try to win the favor of Artemis. And and what Acts 19 says is that people trusting in Christ, they said, we're done with Artemis. We're done with her worship. And they stopped buying these silver shrines and silver trinkets and amulets used to, to worship Artemis. And it led this uproar in the entire city who saw that Christians were no longer going to the temple of Artemis. They were no longer purchasing the silver uh, amulets and, and trinkets and religious items. And it's this threatening environment that Paul says, it's in this threatening environment that Paul says, if you are a Christian, you can have real security. How, how Paul, can you say that? By knowing, look at the next phrase in verse 18, by knowing the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Let's see if we have a slide for that. By knowing the glorious riches, the glory, uh, his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, last week we, we talked about how this primarily points to God's people as God's inheritance. 
that God wanted you for his inheritance, that God considers you part of his rich inheritance. In other words, Paul is inviting Christians to trust in God's great love for them. He invites us to trust in God's great love for you. Out of his love for you, God claims you as his own. God seeks you out. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned against God, they did something. What did they do? Well, they hid. They hid from God. And that must have been terribly frightening for them. Um, imagine, just for a moment, Adam and Eve looking for a hiding spot to hide against God. Can you, can you put yourself in their position just for a moment? Looking for a hiding spot to hide from God. Now, uh, think of the last time that you played hide-and-seek. Um, some of you, that may be somewhat recent, maybe. Some of you, you may have to go back a while to think of the last time. You won't be able to remember the last time you played hide-and-seek. But I, I tell you what, I, I know that whenever the last time that you played hide-and-seek was, there was some real fun tension when you found that perfect hiding spot and you crouched over or you lay down on your stomach or your back so that no one could find you. And there's some fun, nervous tension when you're in that perfect hiding spot, waiting to see if someone will find you. That's why there's so much giggling with kids when playing hide-and-seek. You play hide-and-seek with your six-year-old, and it's not long before you find her because she's hiding in the closet But she's not quiet. She's giggling because there's this nervous tension when we find that perfect hiding spot and there's fun and there's laughter and giggling. So I know that happened the last time you played hide-and-seek. And I know this. There was no giggling. There was no fun when Adam and Eve were hiding from God because there are two words that Genesis gives us that describe Adam and Eve in their hiding. And those two words are this, ashamed and afraid. They were ashamed and they were afraid. They thought, we've lost it all. We've lost it all. There's no hope. And yet God comes looking for them. God doesn't give up on them. And God doesn't give up on you either. God doesn't give up on doing good for his people. That's the promise of Psalm 84 near the end of the psalm, that there is no good that God withholds from his people. There's no no good thing that God withholds from his people. See, these are the glorious riches. Paul is talking about the love of God who delights in you or pursues after you, who is committed to you, who hunts you down and who does not give up in bringing good to his people. So we can know certain security as we reflect on our glorious riches. And finally, Paul says we have present power. Present power. 
verses 18 and 19, Paul prays that we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Look at that. Not just power, and not just great power, but incomparably great power. According to the working of of his great might, Paul continues to pray. And then he says, oh yeah, and that great might that gives us this incomparably great power, that is the same great might that God used when he raised Jesus from the dead, when he resurrected his body. Now why does Paul go on and on about this amazing power of God? Because he knows something about this power of God that is ours, and it's, it's the same power that God used to make the most horrible moment in history into the most glorious moment in history when he, when he took the death of his son, Jesus Christ, and he gave him resurrection, raising him to new life, and then seating him at his right hand. That's power. And Paul says, and it's given to you. That power is given to you. Now, let's talk about what that primarily doesn't mean. It, it, it doesn't primarily or necessarily mean that you will have the power to take what seems like a horrible moment and just make it into this spectacular moment for, for you. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It doesn't mean, hey, F on one exam, I'm going to make an A on the next exam. That, that's what kind of wishful thinking. It may happen. It may not. It doesn't necessarily, that power doesn't necessarily mean you'll be able to take that F and make it an A. It doesn't necessarily mean business failure one season. That means you're going to have business success in the next. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Jesus did not die on the cross and rise from the grave so that you could make for yourself your dream life. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave so that death would not be the final answer in life. And listen, friends, we need for there to be another answer. Because death is going to sneak up on every one of us. I thought of how the Bible occasionally describes human life. The Bible occasionally describes human life as a vapor. I mean, it's just here today, and it's gone tomorrow. Whether you live eight years or 48 years or 98 years, listen, age 98 gets here like that. It all flies by. And without God doing something, death would be the ultimate ender. If God had not provided an answer, death would have remained that which is the ultimate destroyer of everything that we love, everyone that we love, as every person that we loved ultimately would either leave us through their death or through our death, or it would be the destroyer of all of our work. If death is the ultimate end, then, I mean, think about it. If death is the ultimate end, then your work... I mean, how long will your work outlast your death? All your contributions in your work, maybe maybe 20 years, if that, 30 years, perhaps? If you're Elon Musk, 50 years? I don't know. But then guess what? There's another technology that's used. Guess what? There's another philosophy of life that is used. Guess what? The people that you have helped in your life, they're, they all die. If death is the ultimate end, then it destroys even our work. 
So the answer we really need in life, what is it? It's not the best career advancement strategies. It's not the best philosophies of how to be happy. Those, that, that's not the, the ultimate answers that we really need. It's not the best, best health solutions. Uh, the, the answers we really need aren't, aren't the, 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 the greatest ways to do best in school. The answer that we need is how to keep death from destroying everything that is important to us. And that is the answer that God provides through Jesus, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, and then ascending in his physical resurrected body to rule over the universe. That's the answer that God gives to us. Believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ, and that same power will be in you, given to you. It will raise your mortal body one day, just like it raised Jesus' body to eternal life. But here's the deal. That, that, that future power, it's not just for the future, it's present power now. Present power. The power of the Holy Spirit will be in you. The spirit of wisdom and revelation who helps you to, to see who you are clearly will be in you. God calls you to be a part of a new society. And that's what we see in verses 22 and 23. Let's look at those verses. God calls you to be a part of a new society. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So just look at, keep that verse on the, on the screen for a moment. God placed all things under his feet, under Christ's feet. Okay, all things, we get it. All things are under Christ. And God appointed Christ to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. We get it, Paul. He's over everything. Why does Paul have to say God placed all things under Christ, including the church? Because Paul isn't just being repetitive there. Paul is pointing out Jesus' aim. Jesus is building up his church. All things now have been placed under Jesus. And now Jesus is building up his church with enormous power, Paul says, to be this new society that counters the evil powers that are at work in the world, the powers of hatred, the powers behind selfish pride, the, the, the evil powers that would take someone, place that person in an office and compel that person to see everyone as a, ultimately an enemy or a competitor. Or the evil power that takes a person and hardens her heart so that when injury is done to her by someone else, She wants to inflict the same injury or worse back to that other person. Or the evil powers that whispers to someone, people today, you're you're, you're nobody. You're empty, so you better get out there and prove yourself and show your dominance. And so we look out in society and we see so many people everywhere trying to dominate others relationally through fear and manipulation 
sexually, trying to use sex primarily as a tool for self-gratification, and physically, inflicting, inflicting physical harm on others to get what they want. The powers, the unseen powers of the world can be rather daunting, can they not? But the scriptures say that for those who believe there's this infinite power to be free from any worldly power. And I thought of the well-known statement of Jesus when he says he is building up his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And if you know that the gates of a city, those serve as kind of the protective defense of the city, you realize that when Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church, what he's describing is not, is, is not a church that is always being attacked by society. And see, that's how we often think of it today, right? Ah, society is attacking the church. That's not the picture that Jesus is painting, the the under-attack church that's, oh, but it's not going to fall. No, it's the church that's attacking the city and the defensive, attacking evil and and the evil and the the gates of the, the, the evil that the church is attacking won't overcome the church. It's the, it's the advancing church that Jesus is describing here. The church that is going to be taking back through Jesus as our head creation for its rightful creator and ruler, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. So I just want to ask you this morning, what society are you living in? Are you living in the society that is held captive by the powers of evil, the powers of hatred, the powers of fear? Is that the society that you're living in? Or are you living in God's new society of those that follow Jesus who have this infinite power in them to be liberators? I want to give you three things, quick, and invite you to commit to them. One, commit to your true hope. Commit to your true hope. We have one hope, and that is Jesus Christ. And the redemption of all creation through Jesus Christ, that is the promise. And Jesus Christ is the head of the church, God's new society. Our our hope is no less than that. And I say that because we have many wishful thinking hopes. Um, And I just, I, I invite you to sink your teeth into the hope that is really our hope. You know, we... And we might uh, hope school goes well this year, great, or I finish strong, or I hope that politics goes the way I want it to so that, you know, the societies will be shaped in a good way. I mean, we can hope in that. 
You can put your wishful thinking in, in good financial or physical health, but I invite you to sink your teeth in the hope that we know is ours. And that is that God, Jesus, head of the church, will be renewing all things, making all things new. And he's going to be using his new society, the church, to do that, to help do that. Um, and one of the reasons why I say that today is because what we hear from, not the church, well, sometimes the church society, but the other society, the society we live in, that the church tends to be a place that you go to, rather something that you are a part of. There's a huge difference in that. Seeing church as a place that you go to, rather church as the body of Christ that you are a part of. Two, invite you to commit to um, examine um, your sources of power that you use. Look in your life for illegitimate sources of power. Just like those Christians in Ephesus realized, we got this illegitimate source of power, all these scrolls of sorcery that we used to use, and we're saying no more to that, and we're burning them. We're done. So I invite you to commit to possibly an Ephesians-type moment where you see an illegitimate source of power in your life, and you say, I'm done with this useless thing. And one of the key indicators of an illegitimate source of power in your life is when we manipulate when we manipulate people or processes in order to obtain for ourselves the future that we want. Um, manipulate people or processes to attain the future that we want for ourselves, and that could be just kind of habitual, um, maybe like. Gossip, you know, to try to manipulate others to achieve some relational goals that you have. Maybe pornography, using pornography to feel like you're in control of your life, your sexual life. Um, could be the daily drive to stockpile resources for yourself because you just don't know if there's, we're going to run out of stuff. I mean, these are kind of the illegitimate sources of power to, to look for in your life. And if they're there, maybe commit to an Ephesians-type moment where you just say, I'm done with that. I burn it. I'm done. And three, commit to belief in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Especially if that is not a belief that you have committed to yet. That you make that your commitment today. That you believe that Jesus died to forgive you of your sins. That he died to forgive you of your sins so that through his sacrificial death on the cross, so that when we, when our bodies do eventually die, we have eternal life and not eternal death in separation from God. Believe that, that God treasures you. And that he reigns in heaven for you and he, he chooses you to be a, as part of his people, his, his church. 
that he's given the power to live in this victorious way as a part of God's new society that he will then use to go and overthrow the evil societies of our world. Commit to that. Let's pray. Lord, we see in this scripture enormous promises. And perhaps these are promises that almost seem too big to believe in. This this enormous power that is available to us. When we seem so powerless at times, it's hard to believe in that enormous power. To believe in this hope that helps us to uh, go through any disappointment in life knowing that soon and very soon you're going to make all things new. And we get to enjoy the, the newness of your creation because of Christ. And for us to really believe that there are these glorious riches of, of your love seen in your claiming of us as your very own. Lord, we pray that these promises would penetrate deeply into our hearts this, this morning and that we might be able to commit to you in living a new way to relying on your spirit for a new level of trust and obedience. That's what we ask for. We ask that you would receive us now in Christ's name. Amen.